Hi, my name is Jamil, and you're listening to Public Health World. Join me as I interview people making a difference in the world and their communities through public health and global health alike. Today I'm here with Dr. John Coventy. He's a public health nutritionist who specializes in food culture and health. John started as a practicing dietitian in the 70s, but soon found a passion for public health and how it relates to nutrition. Hey John, how's your day been? Well, it's been good so far, but it's Monday morning, so let's see what the rest of the day and the week roll out. Yeah, definitely, yeah. so I suppose to get started straight up, straight off the bat, who are you? Basically, like, how do you identify, um, what are you, what do you do? Well, I'm a professor here at Flinders University and my area of interest is food, culture and health. And I split that word culture between food and health because for me, the link between food and health is always contextualised around the culture that we're talking about. So my general area really is to look at uh, food culture and what that means for for individual mm. and population health. Yeah, cool. Um, so kind of adding on to that, it's not technically on there, but what qualifications do you have for anyone who might be interested in the sorts of jobs you've done? Yeah, the first qualification that I got in this area was really my first degree in nutrition and dietetics. So I was actually a card-carrying dietitian for a number of years and I worked in clinical um, situations. I spent six years at the Children's Hospital in Sydney. Um, I then worked in um, more public health situations. So coming out of the clinical uh, milieu and going into broadly public health, that's what I did then. Um, My master's degree was in education, especially how we educate health personnel. Uh, and that was a, a really good um, course to take. And my PhD was really in the moral history of food and health. When and how did we start to become guilty about what we ate way back when? Because it's fairly easy to see how we do that now. If you eat chocolate, mm. you feel less virtuous than if you ate carrots. Mm. And the metric there is actually nutrition. But actually, our relationship with food goes back yeah. so much longer so, than so that. With that just curious did that stem uh, stem to things like eating disorders things like that as well was that part of that research partly because if you look at the history of eating disorders there is a lot of history there which talks about the way in which people who have eating disorders feel guilty about mm. food uh, they feel shame and um, and then their need to repair that which manifests itself in altered eating mm is kind of part of that part of that disorder. Yeah. So yeah, it, it did t- it did touch upon that, but mostly in a um, in a, in a historical sense. Yeah. The way that food can be used to provide us with a kind of moral guideline. Yeah. 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 So would that system to things like veganism, things like that with moral well, guideline? My, it's funny, isn't it? Because I'm, I'm I'm kind of doing some thinking around this. And in the good old days, we used to have the church, which told us, you know, how to think and feel about food. You know, gluttony was a, 
um, a deadly sin mm. and all of that stuff. And once we've kind of repackaged that and we've set all that religious stuff aside, there is still this relationship that we want to have with food. And I think that that's one of the reasons why veganism, vegetarianism, our interest in the provenance of food, our interest in the quality of food, mm. that all goes back, in my view, to us creating an, a, a kind of quasi-religious mm. relationship with food. I mean, sometimes vegans can be very, very devout. Yeah, I will, <laughs> I will attest, attest to that, yes. Um, so, I suppose moving a bit on from that sort of area, what has been the highlight and low light of your career? I think, uh, I, I wouldn't say my highlight was something that I did for somebody else. My highlight was an awakening of um, my understanding of food and health during the two years I spent in Papua New Guinea. Yeah. I went there for two years um, as part of a, a, a program of volunteer work and um, the New Guinea culture was so different from my own, it kind of blew me away um, trying to understand how people in that culture thought, you know, experienced things. So that was a bit of a, that was a, bit of a highlight. Uh, the low light might come from that when I realised how, um, how trivial I was in the sort of notion of change, as it were. Mm. New Guinea is a country which is undergoing rapid mm. urbanisation. So people leave the rural um, areas and go to move, live in the city. And when they do that, they actually have a problem of food security mm. because they haven't got their gardens anymore. They don't have a, a regular supply of food. They basically live on rice and would, tin fish. Would, would they also have the issue as well where because of, if I'm not mistaken, a country like Papua New Guinea, the, the migration to the cities happened very quickly. It's not like in Australia where it's happened over periods of time. I mean, yeah. you also had other issues as well, stemming yeah. like housing, yeah. all those sorts of other issues as well. Would that be correct? Um, in it's that? still undergoing this experience yeah. of urbanisation. And if you look at somewhere like Port Moresby, there are many, many shanty towns just that abut the, mm. the central district. So when I realised how big the problems were and how small I was in the face of them, that was quite sobering. And I suppose I'd put that as a kind of a, a low-water mark rather than mm. a high-water mark. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, so from there, um, what would you class your definition of public health? I would say that it's the art and science of giving um, most, most health to the many. Yeah. So I think of major programs in public health that have had uh, success and, you know, putting fluoride in the drinking water, um, however you feel about that, has to be... Um, one of the most successful ways of protecting dental dental health. Um, breastfeeding has to be one of the best ways of nourishing, you know, mm. young young babies. Um, our views now on tobacco control, um, uh, where cigarettes and and other tobacco products um, have fallen in use incredibly, and Australia's been a world leader in that. Um, all of that have been strong public health programs. Yep. Unfortunately, we don't seem to be doing very well in the area of food and health, Jamal. We can talk uh, yeah, about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I suppose almost actually almost talking about that almost straight away from that would be um, what is public health nutrition and why is it important? Yeah. 
And so, also, sorry, and also, how does it stand? How how's it different from regular nutrition and dietetics? Yeah. So, public health nutrition would be the application of the principles that I mentioned: the greatest health to the greatest number to the food supply. And normally, in public health nutrition, you have some goals that you are trying to achieve. And I suppose the ones that are most familiar to people listening to your program might be the guide, Australian Dietary Guidelines. So the role of public health nutrition would be to try to help people individually, in groups, in families, in communities, to move closer to, to those guidelines, which are currently being revised, by the way, but they probably mm. won't change very much <laughs> because they're bound to come back and tell us mm. that we should be eating more fruits and vegetables, whole grain cereals, you know, minimum amounts of uh, animal protein, larger amounts of plant-based foods, etc., etc. So really the role of public health nutrition is to try to figure out what are the barriers mm. and what are the levers in relation to achieving those, those goals. Yeah. yeah, so what does public health nutrition do right? Um, I think it does right in terms of looking at the evidence that we have um, to help us better understand the relationship between food and health. And that's very, very important. Otherwise, you run the risk of promoting principles which don't have an evidence base and are unlikely to actually um, improve the population's health. So it kind of, it does that right. Yeah. So going on from that, what are some weaknesses of public health nutrition? Okay. So here's a good example of one of the weaknesses. Um, the last round of the Australian Dietary Guidelines about five years ago um, were released. 2013, I think it was. Something like that, thank you. And, and there's some, now some data which shows how many people were able to comply with those dietary guidelines. So um, one study by Professor Kylie Bohr at Deakin University, she had, the, she had access to the dietary information that was collected as part of the Women's Longitudinal Health Study. And this was information on the diets of 10,500 women, actually more than that, 10,520 women. So Kylie and her group looked at that dietary data and looked at in relation to what the recommendations are. So they were able to see how well these women complied with the Australian Dietary Guidelines. Yep. Um, I've already told you this, Jim, so help me here. Of the 10,500 women, how many do you think were able to comply with the Australian Dietary Guidelines? You didn't tell me, but as a guess from my own little bit of research on this sort of area, I would probably say very few. I would, as a guess, maybe 10%. Okay. Two women. Huh. Out of 10,500 <laughs> women, only two women were able to achieve the dietary guidelines. So I, I assume that would have to do with the fact that it's um, the, the health eating guidelines don't take into account um, anything other than a biomedical model of health. That's right. They're not yeah. situated within a cultural context. So essentially, though the health eating guidelines are, public, are, are public health, because they don't um, they said they make this mistake where they're attempting to treat or try to prevent things through the health eating guidelines when they don't take into account um, people's individual experiences and other and issues like, That's for right. instance, money. Money. So mm. there are a whole lot of things mm. that may be in the way of people following the dietary guidelines. So the weakness is instead of. Um, compiling new guidelines based on the latest evidence. In other words, the question there is, 
what should we eat in order to be healthy? The question that should come before that is, why did the last dietary guidelines prove to be such a failure? Yeah. Why was it that people weren't able to follow them? That's what you need to ask, yeah. and that's the question you need to answer, because there's no point in rolling out yet more guidelines if people can't mm. follow them. So that's one of the weaknesses of public health in this particular area. It hasn't stopped to ask the question, what was getting in the way of people following the last round of dietary, yeah. dietary guidelines? Which is a hard question to answer at the moment because we actually don't have good data on that. We don't collect good data mm. on what people eat, how they eat, the social milieu in which people eat. I've just got uh, three PhD students who are just coming to an end of their, one of them's actually finished, of their candidature. And they've been looking at food in families and they've been doing a very, very fine grain examination of what goes on in family life, especially families today when you've got two parents working, you've got kids that you have to nourish and nurture and optimise. There's a whole range of things that take place there for which the food industry has given us a lot of convenience foods to make mm. life easier. You know, We sometimes um, berate the food industry for giving us a lot of foods that are unhealthy, but actually, uh, and I'm not an apologist for the food mm. industry, a lot of the time they're giving us foods to make our lives easier, not necessarily healthier, mm. easier. And it seems as though that's what people want. Health coming no, second. Not, 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 not just easier, but in a lot of cases, like with, as, as you would know, the salt, sugar and the fat, yep. um, especially together. If I'm not mistaken, there isn't any foods in real, in like real foods that have salt, sugar and fat together in, um, in the quantities yeah, sure. Um, sure. that these food, like for instance, I mean, look at KFC, for instance. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, I mean, those three things, I mean, they're literally chemically addictive in our brain, making yep. it actually, in a lot of cases, having, instead of having like a regular food, like, oh, like bulimia or those sorts of things, you end up getting more binge eating and things yep. like that, which is, and also tends to happen a lot in males, but we've got this issue where we don't tend to talk about um, eating disorders in men. No, it's true, and you're right. What we end up with um, is a range of uh, convenience foods that are so bloody convenient. Mm. I mean, they really are convenient. And to make them more edible, you're right, the industry adds appropriately sugar, fat, salt, uh, mm. various flavour enhancers, uh, etc. So um, one of the problems we've got, and it's something that I don't think anybody's really thought about, if we're going to move people from those... Um, what they're currently eating, to what we might eat for a sustainable diet, we've actually got to change mm. our appreciation and our liking for certain food Groups. products. <laughs> you know, mm. we are overcharged around fat, protein and sugar. And if we're going to eat foods that are more sustainable, a lot of the foods won't be able to have that in them. That's why mm. we've got to be careful with many of the vegan foods around at the moment, which might not have any meat products in them, but are still not sustainable because they're so processed. They've been through so many processed um, parts of their manufacture. You know, when I see uh, ch chicken nuggets, when it's not actually chicken, it's tofu, mm. I think, well, actually, I don't think this is a sustainable well, to product. To tofu itself isn't very... Like, essentially, tofu nugget is actually probably one of the least changed things from the tofu. you've got a whole lot of additives in there. And not, flavour enhancers. Not always. 
Um, and that's one that you can make yourself as well, which is an interesting one. But even then, if you look at it from uh, just as a more of a question there, if you were to look at it, say, from a animal versus plant-based protein sort of thing, I assume, um, well, from the, my own research as well, the animal protein tends to be worse on the environment and all, all the other issues as well. well. I don't know whether anybody's done the metrics on this, Jamal. I was at a conference mm. um, last week where one group in Portugal were presenting their results where they'd produced a, a plant-based hamburger, hamburger mm. in quotes. So they had a, a whole lot of things that they'd added yep. to it. Um, now, one of the ingredients was um, potatoes that they put in it. Yep. There's a good chance those potatoes were coming from Peru because that's where Portugal gets a lot of its potatoes from. <laughs> I know, you've screwed up your face. But, you know, when, when, mm. you, when you come to manufacture these, you've got to be mindful mm. that the provenance of food, where it comes from, provides a major determinant as to what its, greenhouse, what its you know, environmental yeah. footprint's going to be. So we've got to be careful when we're just substituting one food for another. Yeah. And we've got to be mindful of what the implications there are. So you'll be more suggesting along the lines of a mostly plant-based diet rather than, um, r- 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 rather than, um, and by that I mean like a whole food plant-based diet. I, I would be more inclined to support um, food change that appears to be following already existing plant-based cultures, plant-based yep. food cultures, um, and doing that very successfully. So yep. if you and I went to a traditional Indian restaurant, yeah, okay, okay yeah. we could easily eat vegan. Yes, definitely. We don't have to have mm. tofu nuggets. Yeah. You know, we could easily uh, follow a vegan diet. And there are many, many food mm. cultures that we, could, that we could follow. We don't have to yeah. buy into highly manufactured foods like vegetarian sausages. We don't have to yeah, do no, that. I agree wholeheartedly. We don't have to. Um, like I said, I'm predominantly whole food plant-based. But every now and then, like, um, I don't mind the odd... Um, they said, like, I actually just bought some vegan popcorn chicken to try. Yeah. Um, being a new one, I thought I'd give it a try. But I don't necessarily mind doing that sort of thing because I know, one, the studies show that the impacts on the environment tend to be a bit better. In a lot of case, in some cases, a lot better, um, especially around the greenhouse gases and yeah. the methane sort of area yeah. and the physical land usage. Um, I was reading one study recently that, in I don't know how it is in, in Australia, but I know that in America, um, it's about 75% of the arable land is used either for crops for animals yeah. or, for, or, for, or, or for the actual for physical grazing, farming. Yeah. yeah. So when you consider it that way, um, and like the way I, I look at it is from a lot of it from the environmental and to even to some extent the health, health point, um, but predominantly around the uh, environmental issues of, yeah. of the animal agriculture, I tend to lean more towards the t- towards the plant base for that yeah. for that side. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and mm. I think that's cool. Um, mm. I've never seen a comparison of the uh, environmental footprint of some of the um, milk substitutes that we have today compared to cow's milk i've I, the most i've seen with that would be the like um what the amount of water usage and things like that um i know that cows by far the most i can't remember how much it is although i did see some question marks around uh, 
growing almonds and how much water that takes. Yeah. But when you said it goes back, it, it does use a lot of water, yes. I'm not going to disregard that at all. But um, when you consider, it's like um, the classic one is soy. It goes back to this, the, the soy in the Amazon. Yeah. Um, that's all fed to animals. Yeah. In the case of the almonds, most of them um, are, are just almonds that we eat just out of a bag. Yeah. Um, so, but yes, there are de- there are definitely impacts of that sort of area. But I mean, you can look at something like oat milk, yeah. which uses minute amount of water. I yeah. I, I don't even I can't remember off the top of my head. I will send um, a link to yeah, to you. Um, I think it was our um, was it uh, one of the data groups at yeah. our world of data or whatever it's called, uh-huh. which is a pretty big one. They they did that race a couple of months ago. Um, and they do it every now and then. Um, anyway, moving on from um, the some weaknesses of public health, we're going to what is um, critical nutrition and why is it important? So I think what critical nutrition does is it reminds us that um, a lot of the information that we have in nutrition is, I mean, in the in the in the, ma- in the mainstream mm. nutrition is. Um, not well contextualized and therefore um, we use a lot of one size fits mm. all um, when we when we look at that so for example I was looking at an article that appeared in a fairly kind of popular magazine called the new scientist and it was talking about the way that our understanding of what is in food is always measured by the instruments and the calibration we can use to come to that. So our understanding of, you know, vitamins and minerals, and their and their and, their, and them being in food is always uh, the result of how we measure that. And the article was saying actually, because of our sophisticated uh, processes now and instruments to measure what's in food, we have no idea what food contains. He reckoned that about. 99% of the ingredients in food were invisible to us. Mm, so, so that means that a lot, of the, a lot of the things we attribute to nutrition might not necessarily be there because it's not mm. visible to us. So I think critical nutrition makes that sort of thing a lot clearer. It calls into question a lot of um, traditional and uh, taken-for-granted ideas. So another good one is when we use the term calories, we're actually following a process that's about 150 years old where we take food and basically we explode mm. it in um, an oxygen environment. That, and then we see how much heat it's given off and then how many calories it contains. Mm. That has very little to do with the physiological mm. journey that food takes when we eat it and when some of it is released into calories, but some of it isn't. Mm. So uh, critical nutrition would remind us that a lot of what we take for granted probably doesn't help us in better understanding uh, the science of nutrition in the long run. Yeah, so essentially it's a lot of more, for lack of a better term, challenging that status quo of yeah, what, what is health yeah, and what yes, is, yes. in this case, nutrition. Yes, it, you're right, it does. And it, uh, it, 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 it kind of takes a longer view mm. um, and questions a lot of the, as I say, taken for granted. 
So um, would that also stem to other areas of nutrition, like, for instance, racism in our, uh, like, when it comes to, like, for instance, milk, yeah. when 75% of the world's yeah. population is lactose intolerant, yeah. and the health eating guidelines suggest that people of colour who are far more likely to be lactose intolerant should be still drinking the amount of milk that that, that's recommended i mean so you're you're right the kind of one size fits all Mm. attitude to healthy guidelines is a good example of the um ignorance really of the particularities in which cultures exist yeah so how would critical nutrition um apply to uh real world situations such as say the health eating guidelines well, I think what it would say is you've got to understand the context in which the guidelines are being applied. So um, if you need to have um, uh, some understanding of what, how, the, how the healthy guidelines apply to, to, to vegans, how the healthy mm. guidelines apply to people from different cultures, you've got to particularise them and you can't afford to just wheel mm. out the, you know, the healthy diet pyramid or the healthy yep. diet plate or whatever it is. You, but you hardly ever see that. I mean, I was mm. looking at the Canadian guidelines recently, and they've got a fairly progressive idea of mm. what we should be eating, but it's a bit of a one-size-fits-all, and a kind of a few throwaway lines which I thought were a bit trite. You know, so one of the guidelines was try to eat, try to eat in company or eat with others. And I thought, well, well, you know, what do you mean about you know what what do you mean when you say that you know I think you, you, you and I would probably know that like when you say like look at the um, like the uh, was it the French paradox as we were just talking a little bit about yeah. before one of the reasons that they tend like or some studies show that if you're eating with um, family or friends and sitting down to eat um, and and actually physically enjoying your meal and not sitting down watching TV as yeah. you do it. You're more likely to, um, like, you're, sorry, you're less likely to gain, like, eat, eat really fast and then get too full with yeah. all those other issues, which yeah. eventually might stem to being overweight. Yeah. Um, I think that was part of what they were getting at. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Well, I think that the, the, the idea of conviviality and what is called commensality, commensality meaning eating in company, mm-hmm. um, that's really getting quite a lot of airtime because it is true that uh, subjectively people appreciate more food that they mm. eat in a shared environment. Objectively, I think we're still waiting for the, the numbers yeah. to come in. Yeah, yeah, fair enough, yeah. Um, as well, so say the health eating guidelines, would you suggest possibly as a, a way to make it so it isn't a one-size-fits-all, so to speak? Um, possibly having multiple guidelines. So, for instance, um, we've got, like I said, the classic example is the milk. Yeah. I always go back to that one. It's a really good example of where, um, especially in, in Australia, where we go wrong with, especially Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Yeah. Would it be an ideal way to kind of boycott that one size fits all? Would possibly to be looking at, say, Creating an Aboriginal Tushet Islander health eating guideline. I don't, a, uh, you'd have to argue mm. that they had physiological needs which are different mm. from, you know, people who aren't yeah. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island origin. <clears throat> and I don't know if we've got any evidence to show that there is a major, major difference. One of the things you might want to do is to be mindful of some of the traditional foods that yeah, those cultures eat. That was eat. the other thing I wanted to suggest. So I was think that would be those sorts of think, things in. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be very helpful. 
um, so that people from those cultures could appreciate that they're uh, not expected mm. to eat what mainstream cultures are, are, are in fact eating. So something like that would be, I think, important and, and useful. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no. Um, so I, I thought the same thing for the for um, vegans. I know that I think in the UK they're looking at doing a separate because the amount, the amount of vegans has grown massively yeah. in the UK. Yeah. Um, I believe uh, I heard something recently that they're considering making a second health eating guidelines on the premises of veganism and things like that because of that huge increase. Okay. Well, that'd be interesting mm. to look at. And see how different it might be from what I mentioned earlier, which was the Canadian dietary guidelines, mm. because they moved a lot of yeah. animal-based foods out and plant-based foods in. Yeah. So we might already have that. Yeah. You know, we might already have that in those those guidelines. Well, I mean, um, uh, Harvard Health is another good example where if you look at their, uh, that I mean, though they don't technically have food on their plate, when you actually read what they talk about, they're... they're, they're idea is, a, is for a mostly plant-based um, diet, yeah. um, which keeps on coming across. It said, like, I grew up on farms, so for me it was very weird. Yeah. When I first come, came across, for me it was the China study. I don't know if you yes, ever Yes, I've came, seen that, yeah. Yeah, so I came across that, and it blew my mind. Like, just this whole, this idea that um, even though these, this area was in China, obviously, was relatively in poverty still, they didn't really have the chronic diseases that, no. were, that were affecting in this in America and even Australia. Yeah, um, and it was very interesting. Um, I, I I've both read the book and I've also watched Forks Over Knives, which is a documentary. Yeah, on on, on that and yeah, just um, like um, reading and watching the and watching this documentary, it's very it's very interesting to see um, it, how something as simple as diet can affect our whole world even um as said like um and then as said with the increase of other documentaries and things like that like cowspiracy or the um um life on our planet by david Attenborough, all Mm. those new new documentaries coming out which are suggesting that in order for us to even meet things like the sustainable healthy uh, sorry the sustainable um goals or the uh um that the un created or even um even hit our climate goals, we mm. need to start looking at animal agriculture as well mm. because it's as if they, especially in a country like Australia, we, but even the Greens, they actively avoid the subject of animal agriculture mm. in the sense of global warming. Mm. 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 So it's just, yeah, interesting to see. What are your thoughts on that sort of... Um, where do you see our diet going, essentially? Well, um, I think that the popularity of vegetarianism and veganism probably will continue whether that will be enough of a shift to um, make uh, a difference Mm. because of the number of people following those guidelines I think is something that we wait and uh, and and see I'm quite interested in um, the steps we need to take uh, in order to achieve those sustainable dietary goals yeah Um, I've been thinking of, a, of an experiment actually which has an illustration of the Canadian or the Eat Lancet yeah. you know, goals that you mentioned earlier. So an illustration of those and then an illustration of, of what that looks like today and you'd see if it was yeah. like a, a plate, you'd see for what we eat today quite a, quite a large wedge of it given over to 
mm. animal based foods. Yeah, well, what, what is in Australia, I think we're the second, or we're on par with America as the biggest meat eaters still. Uh, yeah, um, there, I like mean, a, there, yeah, it's like sure. hundred kilos a year, something or like some crazy something like that. Yeah. Number. I think, although I think uh, Argentina has a fairly healthy appetite. They do, for, yeah. They're yeah. a little bit below us, though. Okay. Um, I was that's from a couple of years ago when I was looking at that. Yeah. Though, mind you, um, I don't know. Whether so I'm interested in how we mm. move from the illustration that I mentioned there, which is mm. predominantly animal based. How do we actually move to? The plant base. What what are the baby steps there? Because yeah. it's going to have to happen um, yeah. within mostly within a family context. Yeah, because that's where most people eat mm. the food. No, no, definitely. Yeah, um, as I've, I've I've been kind of looking at the same sorts of things because um, so I'm I'm personally I've done a lot of vegan activism, especially the stuff on the street, like the more education sort of yeah um, stuff. But I have friends who have done like a lot of the direct action, and I think there's issues with that now where because everyone knows what veganism is the direct action becomes a bit um a little bit unnecessary to some extent and then almost puts some people off going vegan because of the bit too the, radical well, perhaps, yeah, yeah yeah basically yeah i mean like look at um a couple of weeks ago we, a couple of days ago in england with the um extinction rebellion um with the queen's Thingy that's Jubilee, on yeah. Um, Jubilee, yeah. Um, a couple of the uh, a, a vegan activists jumped jumped the fence uh, because the um, the guards wear the beaver hats and the, there's the horses and all that sort of thing, and they actually glued their hands in front of, like, super glued their hands to the um, ground in front. Yeah, uh, I so don't think that's going to win hearts, is it? Yeah, I think we're I think we're past that point. It yeah. gets newslines, and that was that's the point of it. But I think now we need to start moving to this idea of education. Yeah, most people don't even know, especially in a country like Australia, most people don't even know how to cook something as simple as lentils or yeah. tofu because we've never really done it. Yeah, um, and as I said things like lentils are also perfect for like places like Western Australia, where. They don't require much water. Mm. The yellow, well, not yellow, the um, orange lentils are literally perfect for Australia's drought-ridden yeah. climate. Yeah. Um, and it's like it, we we could literally be the foremost grower. Of, and and of what, what like rural lentils. area did you grow up, Jamal? I'm from the Snowies. Okay. So I'm I'm from a little town called Adaminibi. Yeah, most, I know where that okay, is. Yeah, most yeah. people haven't heard yeah. of. Yeah, so I'm from I'm from there. Um, my granddad used to run a farm called Happy Valley. Um, and, and what did he run on that farm? Uh, so there was predom- pre- predominantly um, cattle, um, okay. Angus, and shearing as well. Um, so uh, my granddad owned the farm. My uncle ran it um, sort of thing. Uh, my granddad actually ran a museum physically inside the oh. in, in there, um, which was back, back, back then when I was a kid. was quite a big... Like, a lot of people knew about it. It was yeah. one of the largest pre-colonial history museums in Australia yeah. for Australian history. So they had a lot of colonial history yeah. stuff. Um, Very good. A lot of the men from the Snow River, that sort of yeah. era. Um, so yeah, no. Um, I suppose moving on, we're getting pretty close to the end now. Um, do you have any advice for students interested in public health, nutrition or, or public health itself? Well, we have some terrific programs that run through the university. If you want to do public health nutrition, you might want to think about um, doing a nutrition major with one of the health sciences programs. What What about the other out where, um, because 
as now the uh, Masters of Public Health, they have different uh, routes, one of them being a Masters of Public Health Nutrition. Okay. Well, you know, I yeah. didn't know that, but yeah. that's great. I mean, that's going to be the, the entry point. Mm. Um, I would caution people about taking uh, study with organisations that promote um, naturopathy and things yeah. like that because um, that won't necessarily lead you to many of the jobs that are out there which mm. are often government sponsored and naturopathy mm. isn't really well recognised mm. as being one that the government positions would support or non-government agencies. So if anybody wanted to study public health nutrition, um, I would encourage them to enrol in one of our programs. And there are many around the yep. three universities. Um, nutrition and dietetics is a very popular option, but very competitive um, to, and, to get in there. And a lot more science-based as well. A lot more science-based and a lot more clinical-based. Mm, so yeah. you know, if you want to actually sit down in a clinical setting and advise people, that's what you're gonna need to do. Um, but if you'd like to be more into uh, learn more about policy um, and uh, this sort of the guidelines that we, you know, the development of various guidelines, yeah. public health nutrition would be um, more appropriate to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so more if you want to change the system, so to speak, yeah. um, without sounding too radical, if you want to cha help try and change how we see nutrition or yeah. even work at how we see nu different people see nutrition you would suggest people more go into the more nutrition the, the more public health nutrition over the day that would be a better way of doing it rather yeah. than if you're in a clinical setting you don't really have the opportunity to do mm. that yeah um just as a side question as well it is semi-related to this sort of area i've noticed personally that we miss a lot of networking, communication, sort of training in public health. How important has that been to you? Like, do you think we need that sort of a, a boost in those sorts of areas, being able to network either with other public health students or with other people? I think that there are opportunities to do that, but they're not um, as obvious as you would like them to be. So, for example, the Public Health Association mm. in Australia has a, uh, a special interest group that looks at nutrition. And so that's uh, a networking opportunity yep. there. Um, you'd have to be a member of the PHA yep. in, order, in order to do that, but that's there. I think groups like the, um, the Nutrition Society, which um, yep. uh, used to be run mostly by the people at the CSIRO, although I think the coordinator now comes from somewhere else, that's another opportunity yep. um, to, to network. Um, and I'm sure there would be blogs or mm. something like that, Jamal, that yeah, yeah. Uh, would be uh, a useful way of creating networks. Yeah. Um, have, yeah. have you found networking important in your, like, uh, since, like basically in your career? It's funny, isn't it? Um, mm. For the first time in over two years, I was at a conference last week where we attended face-to-face -face and um, all of us just remarked how we missed this. I mean, I came yep. away with about five or six business cards from people that mm. I'll follow up um, as part of my own network. Yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is that networks, yes, they are important. Mm. They really are important in helping you appreciate more the kind of work you're doing and providing you the, the opportunity to work with others. Yep. So, you know, that's, I would call them informal networks. Yeah. Um, 
as, a pass, as opposed to the PHA one, which is a, a more uh, formal way of networking. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So um, I suppose to finish up, what resources would you recommend, be, be that books, research papers, journals, documentaries, etc.? Good. Everybody who's interested in food should read uh, Diet for a Small Planet by um, Francis Moore Lapay. That book came out around about mm. 1970. And in that, Lapay has argued the case for plant-based foods as opposed to animal-based foods. Um, an amazing book for its day. It really blew mm. people away. And then kind of went to sleep, uh, but has been part of resurgence since people have been interested mm. in that. Um, I think there are a couple of uh, cookery books that people would do well to, to follow. One, strangely, is one I was looking at last night called French Provincial Cooking by Elizabeth David. Not necessarily to follow the recipes, but just to appreciate mm. the culture, the food, the, the food culture they have in France. So her book is a marvellous example yeah. of that particular, that particular culture. And then read anything by Rosemary Stanton. Yep. She writes really good books. She writes them with an aim that they be understood by um, more general public. She doesn't write in technical language. She, she's excellent. So anything by Rosemary Stanton is wonderful. And, of course, perhaps people might want to read one of my books. One is called Food, um, uh, which, uh, which is a very slim volume. It's only about 100 pages yeah. long, which goes into a whole lot of things that... I wanted to talk about with food. Mm. Yeah, so literally just called food. It's just uh, called any, any, just... any other books have you written or just uh, that one? But that, no, I've written uh, four other books, two of them solo and others in um, yeah. others in uh, in partnership with, with colleagues. Yep. So I've written books about food insecurity, yep. food poverty, um, food morals and meaning was my first book. Yep. So I don't want to pat myself on the back, but... They're not a bad read. Mm. Okay, yeah, cool. I'll uh, work out a way I might be able to link them through Amazon or something. So, yeah, if um, you send me a message with what those ones are, I'll uh, add that to the um, description of the podcast. Lovely, I'll do that. Um, And as well, thank you you for being on the podcast. Um, It was an absolute pleasure. Um, I do want to ask, though, as well, if someone wanted to get in contact with you, how, what would be the best way? Easiest way is John Coveney, Flinders yep. University. That will bring up my university webpage, yep. uh, which has all the links to me via telephone, email. Yep. I'll, uh, I'll add a link to that as well. Yeah, yep, that'd cool. be good. Yeah, so uh, yeah, thanks heaps for, heaps for this podcast. Absolute pleasure. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Bye.